EM Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up is Swami on the management of the patient with ACE inhibitor or bradykinin-mediated angioedema. We're not talking anaphylaxis here. That's a whole different kettle of fish that we covered in detail in episode 78, live from the EM Cases course. Swami's going to give us his approach to the scary crash airway in these patients, which luckily is a very rare occurrence, and an approach to the non-crash airway of the angioedema patient. And I'll give you a hint. We're talking Kobe, if you remember that, which Ruben Strayer covered in previous Quick Hit. And awake intubation, which George Kovacs covered on his best case ever and in the burn episode. All right, here we go. In recent years, I found that we spend a lot of time talking about the physiologically challenging airway. And we should spend a lot of time talking about it. It is more common. It's something that we need to be really facile with. But of course, we also see anatomically challenging airways, and that's what I want to get into. One of the anatomically challenging airways that isn't so uncommon, that's angioedema. Angioedema is defined as swelling of a mucous membrane, and the tongue and the lips are the most common ones that we see. Most of the time when we think about angioedema, we jump right to ACE inhibitor-induced, but there are other causes, and there are actually two flavors of angioedema we need to think about. The first is histamine-mediated. These patients typically will have diffuse, symmetric swelling, they'll have a fast onset, rash is pretty common, and you often see other organ systems involved. So if I see the patient with lower lip swelling and a rash, I'm thinking histamine-mediated, and we're going to treat that just like we would treat anaphylaxis, epinephrine, steroids, and H1, plus or minus an H2 blocker if you think those will help. The other flavor of angioedema is the bradykinin-mediated one, and this is typically from ACE inhibitors. That's the most common form. These patients will have focal asymmetric swelling. They'll have a slow onset. Rash is not typically seen, and other organ systems are uncommonly involved. I want to focus most of our time on the second one, the ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, that bradykinin-mediated angioedema that can really worry us because some of these patients will actually have a rapid deterioration. There really is a large spectrum of disease here. Some patients are going to have significant swelling, but it's going to be slow, they're going to be stable, and there's going to be no acute airway compromise. For those patients, the vast majority with swelling but stable, you're going to observe them, you're going to make sure to stop the medication that's inciting this, usually an ACE inhibitor, although it can be an ARB, and then they're going to go home. The amount of observation you give is really going to depend on how long the symptoms have been going on for, what's swollen, and if you're worried about it, you can always admit them or place them in observation overnight just to see how they do. It's the other end of this spectrum, those patients with rapid progression that we really need to focus on how to manage that airway. There are lots of airway challenges here. They're too swollen for direct or video laryngoscopy. They might be too swollen for an LMA or even for bag valve mask ventilation. Direct laryngoscopy or even video laryngoscopy might increase the swelling by causing some local trauma, and waiting might not be an option here. If you don't have all of the tools or feel comfortable taking care of these airways, they might rapidly progress in front of you and you might lose any opportunity to do so. In general, I think these airways come in two flavors. There's the crashing patient, the one who needs to be intubated right now, and then those patients who are a little more stable, but they do have enough swelling that you want to take care of that airway. 
For the crashing patient, my typical approach is going to be a ketamine-only intubation. We're going to use ketamine to facilitate a non-paralyzed intubation. It would be great if we could do an awake prep for these patients and then intubate them with fiber optics, but they're not usually going to give us enough time to do a full topicalization, and that's where ketamine can come in to facilitate that process. If you have fiber optics, I would definitely be using those in these circumstances, but we know that lots of us don't have fiber optics readily available. While our number one plan is to intubate these patients from the top before that swelling gets worse, we do need to have a double setup here. There should be one operator at the head of the bed with that nasopharyngoscope or DLVL if you don't have fiber optics, and then somebody should be ready to cut the neck. The neck should be prepped, scalpel to skin. You could even make the initial vertical incision and find that cricothyroid membrane and then wait and see if they're able to intubate from the top. If intubation fails from the top, I would probably push my paralytic prior to cutting the neck if possible, because even with the ketamine on board, these patients might be reaching for your scalpel. It's going to make that procedure much more difficult. In that non-crash airway, we still want a double setup. We still want someone ready to cut the neck. Typically in these patients, they have a slow onset, but they have marked swelling. We don't feel comfortable just admitting them to the hospital and leaving them with that degree of swelling without definitively managing the airway. For these patients, a full topicalization with a fiber optic approach makes a lot of sense. If you don't have those fiber optics, this is a case where you can call your anesthesia or ENT colleagues to come down and help you out. Airway is clearly the primary concern, but are there any medications that we can use to help to obviate the need for that airway? Again, if the patient has a histamine-mediated reaction, use the epi, the steroids, the H1, H2 blocker. If you're not sure, you can always give that epi and see what happens. Don't wait too long. But if the epi rapidly reverses the patient, you're probably dealing with the histamine-mediated variety. The ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema is a little bit more difficult. There really aren't medications that we can use here. One medication that gained a lot of press a couple years ago was Icatabant. But the studies that are there show that it doesn't really work. You probably don't have it anyway, and it's really expensive. Fresh frozen plasma is often touted as a possible treatment for ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema because it contains enzymes that can degrade bradykinin. There are case reports out there of this being given and the patient getting better, but we have no idea if that's just association or causation. The problem here is that in addition to having enzymes that break down bradykinin, there are also precursors of bradykinin in FFP. So it's possible that this could actually make the patient's angioedema worse. In addition to that, unless you work at a trauma center where you have FFP thawed and ready to go, it's unlikely to be ready in time for that crashing patient. So you're not going to really be relying on this to reverse your airway. Tranexamic acid is something that recently has come into the literature as something we should consider in these patients as well. The mechanism is that it stops conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, and that's a critical step in the calocrine activation, which produces bradykinin. TXA has previously been used in the treatment of hereditary angioedema, but there's scant literature for the use in these ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema, which is more likely what we're going to see. An October 2018 article entitled TXA as first-line treatment for episodes of bradykinin-mediated angioedema induced by ACE inhibitors enrolled 33 patients with severe episodes of angioedema. All the patients had at least partial improvement with tranexamic acid, and none of them were intubated. The dose they used in that study was one gram over 10 minutes. In those patients with the non-crashing airway, the one where you want to control that airway, you want that definitive airway in place, but you have some time to set up, I would give a gram of tranexamic acid and see whether it obviates the need for that intubation. If the patient has enough reversal of the swelling for you to say, I'm comfortable without putting an airway in this patient. 
For the crash intubation, I'm probably going to ask for the tranexamic acid, but I'm not going to wait for it. I'm not going to wait to see if it has an effect. Those patients need to be intubated rapidly before I lose the ability to intubate from above. And even if I've already lost the ability to intubate from above, I need to control the airway with a crike quickly. I can't wait for this medication to work. I can't even wait for the medication to be drawn up and brought to the bedside. It's more likely that this is going to have an impact in the non-crash patient, so you should think about giving it in those situations. For those patients who have the acute airway, the ones that need to be intubated right now, don't wait for anything. Do a double setup, have someone ready to correct the patient, look from above, consider that ketamine-only intubation approach, but I would have the paralytic ready, especially if you end up needing to crike, because it's going to facilitate that process. Thank you, Swami. Next up, we have the mighty return of EM doc and world-renowned researcher Jeff Perry, the brains behind the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule and the six-hour CT rule. I had the pleasure of interviewing him just before COVID hit North America. Here we go. We've got a special guest for this EM Cases Quick Hit, Dr. Jeff Perry, renowned EM researcher from Ottawa, who's going to tell us a bit about the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage clinical decision tool, which identifies patients with headache who do not need testing for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Also, the six-hour CT rule, which guides us through when to forego a lumbar puncture, and then also a bit on CSF interpretation for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Now, in his latest article on this topic entitled Prospective Implementation of the Ottawa Subarachnoid Hemorrhage Rule and Six-Hour CT Rule, which was published in Stroke in December 2019. It showed a decrease in LP rates and admissions, but the six-hour CT rule was not 100% sensitive. In fact, it was 95.5% sensitive, which I'm not sure is good enough for me to be comfortable ruling out a subarachnoid hemorrhage with. So considering this imperfect sensitivity for the six-hour rule, how should we apply these decision tools to our practice? So take it away, Dr. Perry. Hello, Anton. Yeah, so the latest study that we looked at was an implementation study where we had physicians use the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule to decide who was at high risk for subarachnoid hemorrhage such that they'd need to investigate. The Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, as many of your listeners likely know, has gone through many previous studies where we've derived the rule, we ended up revising the rule, and then subsequently validated it. And this current study, it's already been previously validated. We're further affirming that it is truly reliable to use. And this study certainly did confirm that. So essentially, patients who don't have any of the six high-risk criteria so that's symptoms of neck pain or stiffness, age greater than or equal to 40, a witness loss of consciousness, onset during exertion, a thunderclap headache, and by thunderclap we mean instantly peaking, or if they have limited neck flexion on examination. So if they don't have any of those six variables, you don't need to worry about subarachnoid hemorrhage. And this study clearly further validated that that is true. So the point you bring up about imaging. So during our series of studies, we've also found that CT, when done within six hours, is highly sensitive for identifying subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we previously were able to show this, and we the point estimate was 100% with 95% confidence bands of 97 to 100%. So in this study, we further validated whether or not this is true. And while you are correct, our 
overall number is 95.5% sensitive, it is important to note that that is likely understating the sensitivity and overstating the problem with relying on early CT. So of the five subarachnoid hemorrhages that were not identified, one of those was a radiology misread. So it actually was positive, but the initial radiologist didn't appreciate it uh, when they first looked at it. That's one of the issues that's going to be in reality, and that is that we are humans looking at these tests at the current time anyway. And so there is certainly the potential that your radiologist will misread the um, initial scan. There were also two cases that are almost certainly incidental aneurysms, and that was stated right in the hospital records by the neuroradiologist, and they were felt to be traumatic taps and they were identified on CTA as having an aneurysm, very small aneurysms, and the once identified, the patients wanted these aneurysms treated. So the neurosurgeons ultimately did intervene, and they, but they firmly felt that these were not truly subarachnoid hemorrhages and that they were incidental aneurysms with traumatic tap, but they went on to, to treat these aneurysms. So many of your listeners may say, well, that's still a significant outcome and we would want to do that. But it's important to know that 1% to 2% of the adult population have cerebral aneurysms. And the vast, vast, vast majority of these aneurysms will never cause patients any troubles uh, throughout their life. They'll die of other causes. And it's only high-risk large aneurysms or ones that are giving them symptoms that actually need treatment. And so we're essentially doing an invasive, dangerous procedure that could cause an ischemic stroke or death or infection or other problems in people who technically don't actually need it, but now that it's identified, it's hard to ignore. There was also one patient with a dural fistula, which is a non-aneurysmal etiology. And finally, there's one patient that was profoundly anemic um, who likely, this is the one I would say likely was a true miss of the six-hour rule. But we do know from the radiology literature, which isn't as well known in the emergency literature, is that patients with profound anemia, so with a hemoglobin less than 90, you cannot reliably distinguish body fluids from blood. So it gets very difficult to, to distinguish these different types of fluids. So if there is some blood in the cerebrospinal fluid, you're not going to see it on your CAT scan. And this particular patient, they had a hemoglobin in the 60s. They were profoundly anemic and chronically so. So even though patients with severe anemia were not excluded from this study, would it be advisable, practically speaking, not to use this tool in patients with a hemoglobin less than 90 or less than 9 if you work in the States? Yes, I agree with that. So it's important to distinguish that this does not affect the overall Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rules ability to distinguish high-risk and low-risk patients. But when you're using the six-hour rule, yes, I would say patients that are known to be chronically anemic or have blood work and, and are found to be profoundly anemic, that you should not rely on the early CT to exclude subarachnoid hemorrhage. I'm not advocating that we do a, a CBC on all patients that where a headache is a concern and where we're we're trying to consider whether or not to rely on the early CT, but patients that either clinically 
appear profoundly anemic or they're known to be anemic or have blood work done for whatever reason and they're found to be anemic, in those patients, you shouldn't rely on the six-hour rule. So it's very important that you obviously apply these tools to the right patients. So for applying the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, so first off, it's for patients who are 16 and over, who are presenting with a new severe headache. They don't have a history of the same kinds of headaches repeatedly in the past over a period of greater than six months. So if they same character, same intensity as a normal headache, then you shouldn't be trying to apply the rule to those patients. Obviously, if they have uh, new neurological deficits, it's not for those kinds of patients. And the headache should peak within one hour. So if the headache's taking several hours to reach its peak, those patients were not concerned about subarachnoid hemorrhage. In our almost two decades worth of research, we were following to see if there were any subarachnoid hemorrhages identified where it took longer than an hour to peak, and we didn't identify any. So we're not worried about those kinds of people. And obviously, if they have a diminished level of consciousness, you shouldn't be applying to them. So if they're low risk, you stop. If they're high risk, then you're likely going to proceed with a CAT scan. If this was done within six hours of the headache onset, unless the patient's ultra high risk, so they've got a history of subarachnoid hemorrhage or known aneurysms, or as I just mentioned, that they're profoundly anemic and known to be so, then if it's less than six hours, you can reliably stop most of the time. What I do is I actually have a conversation with the patient, explain that we've looked at this and, and many thousands of patients such as them presenting such as they are, and that the, the risk is very low. It's likely certainly way less than 1%. I explained what a lumbar puncture is, and I said that's the other test that we could do to explore this further. And I do give them my opinion that if it was me, I would stop, but it's them. And uh, most patients, in my experience, are very happy stopping. I've had one patient that really was still worried and wanted to go on and certainly obliged them with the lumbar puncture, and I'm happy to do so. But most patients are quite comfortable when you give them that kind of information and you just make a shared decision with the patient. What a beautiful integration of EBM and shared decision-making. So just to let our listeners know, the subarachnoid hemorrhage tool will be included in the Ottawa Rules app, along with all their other clinical decision tools, which will soon be available wherever you get your apps. So one more question I have is about the CSF results from the LP in patients you're working up for subarachnoid hemorrhage. You know, we've, we've all been faced with the difficult decision of what to do when we have a traumatic tap, and it's also never been quite clear to me what RBC count below which we can comfortably rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So, Dr. Perry, has your research helped us with these clinical dilemmas? Yeah, so we, we looked at this question because we found that certainly upwards of 30% of all lumbar punctures have some degree of traumatic tap involved. So... What we did is we basically planned to look at this. And what we found was that we were able to quite reliably determine that in your cerebrospinal fluid analysis, if you have a result where you have greater than 2,000 times 10 to the power 6 per liter RBC, so usually that would just say greater than 2,000 on the report, or there's xanthochromia, if you have either one of those, we consider that a high-risk TAP. Arguably, if there's xanthochromia there, it's a positive TAP. But we basically define that. And likewise, if you had less than 
2,000, less than or equal to 2,000, and no xanthochromia, then we consider that a low-risk tap. And how we would interpret that is that unless, again, you have that really high-risk patient where they, they come in, they got the perfect story, they're, they're, in that, they're 50 years old, that is sudden, immediately peaking, abnormal headache, and they just they look unwell, that kind of patient, they got family history and they have family history of subarachnoid, unless you get that kind of presentation, we would advocate, again, having a shared decision with the, the patient, but in most cases, you'd want to stop further investigations. Conversely, if you get a high-risk tap or you have a high-risk patient with a result that's not completely normal, i.e. no red blood cells and no xanthochromia, then in those patients, again, have that shared decision, but in most cases, I would want to proceed and get a CTA. I love that little nuance about the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage six-hour rule for CT rule-out that it should not be used in patients who are known to be anemic, that have a hemoglobin of less than 90 or 9 grams per deciliter, because any blood will appear darker than usual on the CT scan, making it more difficult to distinguish blood from brain tissue and hence can be missed on the CT. Up next, we have another wonderful special guest, the incredible Hanya Belowska, an emergency physician in Toronto, who probably knows more about breastfeeding than any EM doc in the world. Now, we all too often tell moms that they should stop breastfeeding needlessly. Dr. Belowska is going to get into the common myths and misperceptions around breastfeeding that we really need to know. Hi, Anton. Thanks so much for having me and for that amazing introduction. I'm very excited to talk today about a topic that isn't well covered in a medical training, but that we actually encounter all the time, and that is taking care of a patient who's breastfeeding. We often confuse medication safety and lactation with that in pregnancy, or we give overly cautious advice due to a concern for the infant's safety. Where in reality, the vast majority of medications we use in the ED, as well as conditions we encounter, should not preclude ongoing breastfeeding. Not only can our well-meaning advice to avoid certain medications result in suboptimal care of the breastfeeding woman, suggesting that breastfeeding be interrupted or that a mom should express and dump her milk can result in a drop in milk supply and even unintended early weaning. This is because breast milk supply is directly tied to the frequency of feeds via a positive feedback loop. As the baby suckles at the breast and removes milk, a signal is sent for more milk to be made. That's all there is to it. Therefore, when feeds are missed or replaced by formula, this can quickly result in less milk made by mom, leading to a vicious cycle of a baby who's more hungry and fussy, who then gets more supplementation, spends less time at the breast, and eventually this can end the breastfeeding journey. Other adverse consequences of misfeeds are plug ducts and mastitis, definitely not something we want to contribute to. So, you can see how advising a mom to stop or pause nursing unnecessarily has a lot of potential to result in harm without much added benefit. So, Anton, I'd like to share a real case I had with you to illustrate some of these principles. Imagine you are seeing a 30-year-old woman who is six weeks postpartum with a presentation concerning for appendicitis. You order an ultrasound, but what about analgesia? She already took acetaminophen and ibuprofen at home, which she used postpartum and she knew were safe while nursing, 
but she is still in significant discomfort. You see she brought the baby with her too, as breastfeeding has been a challenge and she says she knows she can't afford to miss feeds. So while a lot of us worry about opioid use in the breastfeeding patient, in reality, infant respiratory depression is much more a concern with high doses during a prolonged course of treatment, not with single doses in the ED or infrequent doses at home. Fentanyl and morphine are our best options here. Fentanyl levels in breast milk are nearly undetectable after two hours, while morphine has a short breast milk half-life and is poorly absorbed by the baby. Hydromorphone has a long breast milk half-life, while oxycodone actually concentrates in the breast milk and is not recommended. Codeine is an obvious no-no due to its unpredictable metabolism by mom and baby. So, you order morphine for your patient, counseling her about the relative safety of a single dose. You continue your shift, and she continues to nurse her baby in the ED. Two hours later, you get back an inconclusive ultrasound report, and you decide that the patient needs a CT scan. But is the CT contrast safe in breastfeeding? The answer is yes. The dose of iodinated contrast to the baby is less than 0.01% of the maternal dose and is inconsequential. The only imaging test that we may order in the ED that requires an interruption in breastfeeding is a VQ scan, which needs a 13-hour break due to the half-life of the radioactive isotope. During that time, however, the mom can still express her milk, and the milk is safe to feed to the infant once 13 hours have passed. So, a few more hours later, you get a call about a CT report positive for appendicitis. Your patient is quite anxious about the possibility of surgery and anesthesia. What can you tell her? The good news is, there's strong support from the anesthesia literature that once the mom has recovered and is awake enough to hold the baby, she is allowed to breastfeed. Drugs used for anesthetic induction enter the milk compartment only minimally, and hence their transport to milk is low to nil. Meds such as propofol, etomidate, fentanyl, or midazolam do not require any interruption in breastfeeding except for the actual procedure. The safety of ketamine is unknown, although even that is likely to be safe based on the same principle of rapid redistribution from plasma. And if this seems like a lot to remember, there is an amazing free app called LactMed, which shows us both the medication's safety to the nursing infant and its effects on lactation. This last part is especially important for medications that may be technically safe for the baby but can have a dramatic effect on lowering milk supply, such as pseudoephedrine, for example, where a single dose can decrease milk supply by as much as 25%. The last thing to remember about a case like this, where a mom is staying long periods in the ED or getting admitted, is that she will need to empty her breasts regularly in order to maintain her supply and not get mastitis. If bringing the baby is not possible, women should be encouraged to bring a breast pump from home. Other options are renting a pump from the NICU or outpatient pharmacy, and some EDs even have disposable pumps available for purchase. So Anton, the patient thanks you for your invaluable advice, and since you're such an expert in breastfeeding yourself, she has just one more question. Is it even safe for her to breastfeed when she's this sick with an intra-abdominal infection? And the answer is, you guessed it, it is safe for a mom to breastfeed in the context of the vast majority of infectious disease that we see. Some examples where nursing is contraindicated would be Ebola, smallpox, HIV, rabies, not what we see in a typical shift. 
Another contraindication is the rare circumstance of a mom with herpes zoster on her breast. For all other herpetic lesions, mom can still breastfeed as long as the lesions are covered. This means she may need to wear a surgical mask for lip lesions. Lastly, a few airborne diseases require that a mom be separated from her infant, such as active TB or varicella, but she can still express her milk to be fed to the baby. So that's it. Um, as you can see, Anton, most clinical circumstances we encounter in the ER do not require any interruption in breastfeeding. If your listeners have any more questions about this, I'm going to leave my email in the show notes and I welcome any questions. Some eye-opening stuff for sure. Apparently, since this recording a couple of months ago, uh, the Lactate Med app is no longer available, but you can access the database online. We'll have that link in the show notes. Now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. I get the schedule I want, hassle-free, and the efficiency of the ED improves because they use these amazing algorithms based on each individual doc's efficiency. It's, it's very cool. The Metricade team recently has been working full force from their homes since March 12th, onboarding anywhere from 50 to 300 physicians per week in hospitals from the Atlantic to the Pacific coast. They've also been helping EDs react to the impacts of COVID-19, from reallocating resources while volumes are low, to finding coverage for physicians who have time off on quarantine. They're doing the work of managing schedules so that you can focus on clinical duties. Metricade really wants to help you out during this crisis. Let them give you a hand. Check out metricade.com slash emcases. That's M-E-T-R-I-C-A-I-D.com slash emcases, one word, and get in touch with them today. Next up, we've got the best of EM docs with Britt Long and his special guests, Rachel Bridwell and Michael Gottlieb. Now, there's been quite a bit of literature churned out on the neurologic diseases associated with COVID, most of which is quite poor observational stuff. So it's important to realize this while you're listening to this next segment. Still, there are some interesting neurologic clinical manifestations of COVID-19 that we should be on the lookout for. In admitted patients, neurologic complications can occur in anywhere between 6 to 36% of patients, with hypoxemic encephalopathy affecting 20% of patients in one series. Like cardiovascular complications in COVID, pre-existing neurologic conditions have been associated with more severe infections, greater risk of ARDS, and even mortality. This is pretty interesting data. One study found a two-and-a-half-fold increased risk of severe infection among patients with a prior stroke. And patients with Parkinson's disease also have a higher risk of mortality. Now, to be honest, there are some significant confounding issues in these studies, as many of the patients had baseline comorbidities that predisposed them to more severe infections. By now, we know about the ACE2 receptor in COVID, but does it still play a role in neurologic complications? The ACE2 receptor definitely plays a role. This receptor on the endothelial cells of the blood-brain barrier can allow the virus to bind and enter the CNS, but there are some other mechanisms. First, the massive cytokine release triggered by the virus and the increased inflammatory states, particularly with IL-6, can cause neurologic damage. Other factors stem from the lung damage that causes hypoxemia. This in turn causes cerebral vasodilation, which can lead to cerebral edema and ischemia. All right, so those are the suspected mechanisms, but what kind of injuries are we talking about here? 
The first one, and one of the more common and serious complications, is stroke. We're seeing increased rates of this in the COVID population. In fact, the prevalence of ischemic stroke ranges from 2.5 to 5% of patients with COVID. And we're also seeing this in much younger patient populations than typical strokes, with some even having large vessel occlusions. While we're not 100% sure of the exact underlying mechanism in this population, it's likely multifactorial. These patients exist in a hyperinflammatory state from the infection, but also have significant coagulation abnormalities and are much more prone to develop thrombi. This is all further impacted by higher rates of hypoxemia and baseline cardiovascular risk factors in a lot of these more critically ill patients. In short, keep an eye out for stroke-like symptoms in these patients as they appear to be at higher risk. One of the major issues is what to do when evaluating patients with stroke-like symptoms. The American Heart Association has addressed this balancing act with guidelines for a protected code stroke. If ischemic stroke is diagnosed, standard care is still recommended, including thrombolysis if eligible, as well as endovascular procedures. The next serious complication we need to be aware of is encephalitis and encephalopathy. COVID encephalitis has been reported in several cases, though this is primarily based on clinical and imaging findings, as there really hasn't been any evidence of coronavirus from the CSF. Currently, there are two proposed mechanisms. The symptoms may occur due to edema secondary to this hyperinflammatory response or from direct viral infection. Regardless of the cause, treatment includes supportive care as well as targeted treatment towards the increased intracranial pressure if it's present. Acute necrotizing encephalopathy is an extremely rare neurologic complication that we think is due to cytokine storm and damage to the blood-brain barrier. Unlike other viral CNS infections, demyelination is not present in this condition. Non-contrast head CT can show symmetric, multifocal lesions early on. MRI with T2 flare imaging may show hyperintense signal and internal hemorrhage. We aren't sure about treatment, but IVIG and steroids may be helpful. Guillain-Barre syndrome is the next disease I want to highlight. It has been reported in both China and Italy, with all of the reported cases having upper respiratory symptoms for 5 to 14 days before the weakness began. All patients had positive nasopharyngeal PCR testing, as well as chest x-rays consistent with COVID. Interestingly, and similar to the encephalitis cases, CSF testing was negative for coronavirus in all of these cases. Additionally, brain and spine MRI did not show changes in half of the patients at the time they were obtained. All patients received IVIG, but those who had respiratory failure did not do nearly as well. The lesson from this is that regardless of the imaging, if you have a suspicion for GBS based on symmetric, ascending, flaccid paralysis, discuss the case with their specialist early and consider GBS in the differential. Our last complication is something that most people don't necessarily link to COVID, and that's hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or more simply, HLH. This is most commonly linked with hematologic malignancy, immunosuppression, or critical infection, but it has been described in patients with SARS-CoV-2. These patients present with unremitting fevers, pancytopenia, coagulopathy, hepatic dysfunction, and an elevated ferritin, coming from the uncontrolled inflammatory state and cytokine storm. Up to a third of patients with HLH from COVID-19 have developed neurologic complications, so this is just one more thing to consider when managing critically ill patients with COVID-19. So in summary, we need to think beyond the cardiovascular and pulmonary system in these patients. 
COVID-19 is associated with neurologic complications, which can include stroke, encephalitis and encephalopathy, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Keep this in your differential diagnosis for these patients, and thank you for all that you do to care for these critically ill patients. Try saying hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis 10 times fast. All right, next up we have EBM Gone Wild himself, Dr. Justin Hensley, who's going to give us the lowdown on recognition and management of spider bites. He goes through the two important ones that we need to know about, and those are the recluse spider bite and the black widow spider bite. We'll have some nice images to help you out on the show notes. Now it's time for another episode of Things That Bite You in the Wild with Justin Hensley. This time we're going to talk about spider bites, and all of us are fully aware that if someone comes to the emergency department and says they have a spider bite, there's about a 110% chance that there was never a spider involved at all. But we want to talk about the two commonly known as venomous species in North America. Now, all spiders are venomous. Only two of them in North America are clinically significant to humans. And those two spiders are, of course, the recluse and the black widow. And so say we are hiking in the woods and one of the members of the party gets bitten by a spider. What are we supposed to do? There's really two classic toxidromes, each of which are very different from the other. If they get bit by a recluse spider, often they're going to be inside the house. They're going to be maybe in a storage container or an attic. They're, they're pretty much homebodies. They don't like to hang out in the wild. The recluses, they have a necrotoxin. And so what this does is it dissolves tissues and it causes localized skin issues. So there's two classifications. One is minor loxosalism, which is basically localized edema and erythema. And then cutaneous loxosalism, which is a worse case. Dermal edema, they will have some vasodilation in areas. They'll have vasoconstriction in areas. They'll get leukocyte infiltration, which ends up causing this coagulation and hemorrhage. And that's where you get the classic pattern. So somebody gets bitten. They don't actually know when they get bitten. It doesn't hurt right then. Somewhere between 6 and 24 hours later, they're like, ow, that really hurts. They look down, and they've got a wound. And it may just be red and swollen. Or it may have some hemorrhagic blisters or some irregular ecchymosis. And it has what's kind of classically known as, and for the board's case, the red, white, and blue sign. All that is, is an area that's blue, so ecchymosis, kind of centrally. Surrounding that is an area of ischemia, so it's blanched, it's white. And then around that is this erythematous margin of vasodilation, and so it's red. And so they get this kind of irregular bullseye, red, white, and blue. Generally speaking, the necrosis doesn't show up until about the third day. So 72 hours in, they start having some actual necrosis. And then they'll get kind of this dry necrotic eschar at five to seven days. And this will heal on its own, generally with just appropriate wound care. But it takes six to eight weeks of secondary intention healing for this to get better. Apart from appropriate wound care, keeping it covered, keeping it protected, making sure that it doesn't bleed or get infected secondarily, and symptomatic treatment, such as antihistamines for the itching they have, the pruritus around it, there's nothing else to do. The stuff we used to do, heat packs, nitroglycerin, steroids, Dapsone, all of those have a myriad of harms and zero benefit. The other things you should not do, 
that people like to do for most bites is electric shock therapy. There is no data to support the notion that you will denature the venom proteins any more than you will denature the rest of the patient's proteins by applying electric shock to the wound. So don't do that. What about a very, very serious case? You don't just have a redness around the wound. You've got a petechial rash over your entire body. You start having nausea, throwing up, fever. This is what's known as systemic loxosalism. It's fairly rare, but it's a direct necrosis-related event from the venom causing hemolysis and myonecrosis. This can then lead to acute renal failure. You can have disseminated intervascular coagulation. The problem with this is there's not a whole lot to do in these cases. There's no data that says dumping dapsone into them at this point or hyperbaric therapy is beneficial. If you see somebody with a recluse spider bite and they develop any systemic signs, rash, nausea, fever, you might want to start resuscitating them with blood products, checking their fibrinogen levels, checking their INR, PT, a CBC to look for low platelets, checking a CK to make sure they don't have rhabdo and they're not going to go into kidney failure. Otherwise, there's not much else to do. On the other hand, the Black Widow, their bite syndrome is completely different. Their venom causes acetylcholine release at the neuromuscular junction. What happens is you get this unrelenting transmission of nervous signal. And so you get intense, sudden pain. It can be local. It can be radiating. It can be very regional, so your whole arm could hurt. You can also have localized diaphoresis. And it causes other systemic symptoms like hypertension, agitation. It can cause fevers. And if you're looking for a board answer, it can mimic an acute abdomen. And so you need to rule out appendicitis before you treat them for their black widow spider bite. And so if you see somebody bitten by a black widow or any of the other widow species, often what people will do is they'll remember something they learned in one of their old books about giving calcium. It turns out that that's a terrible idea. Calcium is given because of an old study in the 80s that said, let's use this because this neuromuscular junction involves calcium. Maybe it'll be helpful. Further studies that are still over 20 years old found that when you look at the aggregate population, if you give calcium to everybody, 96% of them get no relief from it. Some of them actually have worsening pain. Do not give calcium. You can also give antivenom. So there is antivenom available for Latrodesia species in America called Analatro. However, if you look at the RAVE2 study out of Australia, it turns out antivenom for Latrodecta species does not significantly decrease pain, does not decrease hospital duration. There's not a significant number of deaths from Latrodecta species. And so there's not a real good cost-benefit ratio for that drug. Otherwise, it's going to be mostly supportive care. They don't need ACE bandages or special wraps or to splint it in position or anything like that. Basically, they're just going to need pain control. They certainly aren't going to need antibiotics for either of these bites. Certainly, these are fairly rare presentations. And as mentioned, if someone comes to the ER saying they were bitten by a spider, most likely they weren't. 
All right, just a quick review here. The recluse and black widow spider bites are the only two spiders in North America that are venomous to humans, each of which have different toxidromes. So first there's the recluse spider bites. They tend to occur indoors. Initially, they're usually relatively painless. They have a necrotoxin that dissolves tissues locally and recluse spider bites are classified into minor and cutaneous. The minor one just has localized skin erythema and edema that resolves spontaneously over a week. And the cutaneous type is the more severe one with cutaneous blisters and or ecchymosis. And classically, it results in the red, white, and blue sign. Treatment involves appropriate wound care and symptomatic treatment with an antipyretic. The recluse spider bite can rarely cause a systemic loxicism with hemolysis and myonecrosis, petechial rash, fever, vomiting, acute renal failure, DIC, but it's just the usual resuscitation and supportive care. Black widow spider bites, on the other hand, are neurotoxic, causing intense sudden pain locally or regionally, localized diaphoresis, hypertension, agitation, they can cause fever, they can even mimic an acute abdomen. Again, treatment is supportive. There's an antivenom, but it doesn't really work very well. And that is about all. Last but not least, we have the Just for Facts CGEM series with Hans Rosenberg. And this time it's going to be on skin abscesses. Welcome to an EM Cases and CGEM collaboration on the latest Just the Facts article. Today, we are reviewing the article MRSA and the ED, Just the Facts about Soft Tissue Abscesses. And I am talking to Dr. Heather Murray from Queen's University, who is one of the legends of emergency medicine education in Canada and the lead author for this paper. Welcome, Dr. Murray. Thank you. Let's jump right into the questions. My first question is, there's the very famous now Talon and Dom studies that were really the big change to the previous studies that had shown little benefit to the addition of antibiotics to an IND. What are the key factors that should guide our use of antibiotics in addition to an IND for abscesses? So I think the key takeaway that is important for people to understand is that the regional prevalence of MRSA is really different from community to community. And so these studies were done in large U.S. urban centers. And the prevalence of MRSA in your center may not be the same. I'm not sure that we use the antibiograms as often as we should. And the pub, there's public health departments and infection control departments all over the country working really hard to provide yearly summaries of what kind of organisms um, are resistant to what sort of antibiotics in your center, both as an inpatient profile and an outpatient profile. And so I think the major message I would like to give people is that We often assume that everybody has MRSA, and that's far from the truth. Even in these studies, which are, as you say, legendary now, the 50% prevalence rate that they had is, you know, like it's still sort of 50, 70, 80%. It's not everybody. So in Canada, especially in smaller, uh, more rural centers, the prevalence can be quite small. What are the risks of adding antibiotics to an IND? Is there a, a safer choice if we are going to go with an antibiotic? So the Talon and Dom studies told us that curates are improved with the addition of an antibiotic, and they looked at some 
commonly seen side effects. So patients who took Septra had about a 10% risk of nausea. And patients who took clindamycin had about a 20 to 25% risk of experiencing diarrhea. Those risks are measurable and common. There are a number of less measurable and more uncommon side effects that, that those papers couldn't capture. One of the side effects is the hyperkalemia interaction that SEPTRA has. And so you need to be cautious prescribing SEPTRA to patients who take ACE inhibitors or ARBs or have a predisposition to hyperkalemia. Other things that the studies weren't powered to detect were things like C. diff rates, Stevens-Johnson's from, from SEPTRA. And it is almost impossible to track the change in community resistance rates if we start max, you know, rapidly up uh, scaling our prescription rates for soft tissue abscess, which is a very common presentation. We know there's an association between MRSA rates in a community and the rate of antibiotic use within that community. And I'm a little bit concerned that the message people are taking from this is that everyone with an abscess should get either Septra or clindamycin. In answer to your question about the safer choice, I think it's patient-dependent based on individual risk factors. Uh, and then the other factor to take into account is there is growing resistance to clindamycin already for MRSA within our communities. And the more that we are using these antibiotics indiscriminately, I think the higher we're going to see those resistance rates. The next question I have for you is, as an emergency physician, I like to keep things simple. I'm a simple brain person and it just works for me. I guess from what you're saying is, would I be able to actually say, hey, to my next patient, you need to be put on an antibiotic because we have this evidence that suggests that putting you on an antibiotic after IND is slightly more effective? Or is it a much more nuanced approach than that? Well, I think it's much more nuanced than just putting everyone on antibiotics. And I think the thing that is also lost uh, from the discussion and, and knowledge dissemination around these two studies is that the placebo cure rate in these studies was very high. So patients who had incision and drainage alone had cure rates that were in excess of 70%. So I think this idea that MRSA abscesses are not going to get better unless they have adjuvant antibiotics is false. More than two-thirds of them will improve simply with an appropriate IND. And so I think that the nuance to this question is identifying which patients benefit additionally from antibiotics so that we're not exposing a large chunk of the population to the risks and side effects of the antibiotics when they aren't really going to have a benefit. So you've obviously convinced me that I've got to take a more careful approach here. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Murray, and have a great day. Thanks for having me. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits. Hope you learned a little bit about airway management and angioedema, the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage algorithm, ED breastfeeding myths and misconceptions, neurologic manifestations of COVID-19, spider bites, and skin abscesses. Until next time, take it easy. Yeah.